Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Guy Perlmuter, an engineer specialized in computer vision techniques using artificial intelligence, author of The Present Future, Business, Science, and the Deep Tech Revolution, and founder of Grids Capital. Hi, Guy. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Really uh, admire your work, in particular your book. It's one of the best books that I have read on the subject. So it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So to kickstart, I would like to ask you, what is Deep Tech? Like, let's start the basics, the 101. Thank you, Edmar, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I think when you ask what is deep tech to different people, you'll get different answers. But for me, deep tech has uh, a strong connection to science, meaning that deep tech is pretty much where science and technology intersect, where they meet. So when I think about deep technology, I think about startups that are pushing the envelope, that are actually advancing the state of affairs normally connected to basic sciences like physics, chemistry, mathematics, biology, uh, and that are ultimately inventing new technologies and techniques that are going to be used in the future by many different fields. And how do you think those startups are different from the, the ones we are used to see in media and, and the news? I think the difference, the basic difference, and I know this is a very broad statement, I think the basic difference is that normally the deep tech startups, they are actually creating a new type of technology, whereas the soft tech startups, uh, they usually, they will take existing technologies and they'll combine them uh, to create a new service, a new product. So the way I think about Uh, soft tech and deep tech is how much of this particular technology uh, has been invented and developed and patented by the group and how much of this uh, particular product or service is actually a combination of multiple pre-existing technologies. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. One thing that I, I like to think about is like when you look at uh, like an app or a social network, it's not a question about if we can create a new social network. It's more a question of market if people want to go to a new social network. Any engineer team that's capable enough would be able to do uh, a social network or, or a software. So it's it's a question just of the market, not of the, the... Of course, like from people that are not from the tech industry, it seems that everything is the same and everything is hard. But <laughs> for us, we can see that like making a social network is completely... Nowadays, actually, it's different from testing a new drug or creating a, a, a new AI system or things like that. So uh, in your book, you use a lot of historical references. I was really surprised by that because in general, in tech books, you don't see a lot of, of history in them, which I particularly find really interesting. Like, why did you, you choose to use this framework of historical references and What do you think we as technologists, investors, founders can learn from history? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the approach that I took when I wrote uh, Present Future, 
business science and the deep tech revolution was one where I felt strongly, I still feel strongly that people are under the impression that we are living in an age of innovation and this is new, right? And and I wanted to, to show uh, in a very uh, objective manner that the whole history of civilization has been driven by technology since since we stopped hunting uh, and became more uh, uh, city dwellers uh, as, a, as a society uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, it has been technology that drove every step of our evolution as a society, as a civilization. And the big difference between now and then is the pace, the speed. We are definitely living in the fastest changing uh, technological environment in history. And uh, in the book, I go into why this is actually going to accelerate and not uh, diminish in terms of speed. But I thought it would be interesting to uh, to uh, establish a framework where the reader would understand that what we are living now is the uh, evolution of uh, trends that have started thousands of years ago. And for every technology that I discuss in the book, uh, I try to make sense of how we got here, what brought us here. And this is something that, I, to answer your second question, I think is very helpful because there is one common trait among every technology and every invention uh, and every conflict in the history of humankind that is people, right? We human beings, we are still very much driven by the same types of emotions, regardless of the new technologies that we have been creating. So if you read your history books, if you read your romance, if you read your fiction, you'll see that the core makings of a human being, ambition, greed, jealousy, kindness, uh, all those uh, features are the same. So if we understand history and we understand in that context that we as people, we are still very much the same that we were you know, hundreds and even thousands of years ago, I think it helps investors and founders alike to grasp that we are still dealing with very basic human emotions and a very predictable type of behavior that could be used to improve society or to improve the products that are being developed. Interesting. I don't I don't remember, I was trying to remember who said that, but I was reading someone that said that it's not only important when you look at technology and thinking and looking at what's going to change, but looking at what's not going to change as well. So this is this is the thing that that I thought about. Wow, this is really interesting. When you, when you try to predict the future, as important as looking at what's going to change, it's looking at what's not changing and what's going to be the same. So this history is like great for that. On, on what did surprised surprise you the most when you look at those facts? Like I, I'm going to give you mine. Like I was surprised by the the electric cars and electric taxis in New York. I was I found it really fascinating that they have like a fleet of electric cars like 100 years ago or something like that. So this was and a lot of other types of of things like that because you think like electric cars cars is a new thing, but they had a lot of electric cars back then. So what what did you in your research 
what surprised you the most? That's a great question because you know during during the writing of the book, there were so so many interesting moments, so many aha moments when I looked mm -hmm. and I say, wow. I didn't know that. That's really cool. That's really interesting. And again, as, as the research and the development of the book uh, evolved, I could definitely see this pattern. So I think probably one of my favorite ones uh, is the fact that uh, streaming technology uh, has been around for you know more than 100 years. Uh, there's this uh, general major of the U.S. Army that built uh, a service which is remarkably similar to what we have today and that we feel it's very new and, and modern. Uh, so this service was basically a, a music service where people uh, could acquire a, a simple gadget that they would plug into their power outlets at home. And through that gadget that was connected to the electricity network, they could hear music that was being streamed oh. to them. And to make things even more interesting, they would pay for that service in their electricity bill. So for me, oh. this is mind-blowing how some... Oh, this is amazing, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is in, in 1920, right? This is like a yeah. uh, hundred years ago. Uh, which, which for me is, is fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting when you see. I think that we have this notion that that we, at this point of time, are smarter than people in the past, which is not the case. They just don't have the same technology that we do. But which what they had, they created a lot of interesting ideas and interesting things that you can see. And. Thinking about like deep tech, like why did you decide to work with with deep tech? Like why why should we care? Why deep tech is important, and why did you decide to to work with deep tech? I think I'll start with the with the with the first part, which is why it is important. I think that uh, we're now facing multiple uh, uh, crises that are most of them are self inflicted, so we're now. Uh, facing the climate crisis, which is which is unlike the pandemic, where there is a, a solution, where you know there's an exit ramp for the pandemic, then the vaccines, uh, the testing, the in the future uh, some sort of therapy, all those uh, elements provide you with an escape route, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know at some point over the next quarters we'll see the world starting to leave the pandemic behind and some countries are already uh, you know uh, very much in the process of doing so uh, but there are other challenges like for instance the climate crisis where there's no exit ramp right there's no quick uh, or quote-unquote quick uh, medicine for us to take and fix the dramatic impacts that greenhouse gases are causing uh, in our planet, right? We have grown accustomed to a specific rate of population growth that will bring the world to 10 billion people in another 30 years. So we will need to feed, you know, uh, 10 billion people. We'll need to provide electricity to 10 billion people. And uh, we can see that this will drain even more resources from our planet. So I think deep technology uh, will inevitably be the source of solutions for those challenges, right? This is not going to be fixed by a new 
a social network or by a new app. This is going to be fixed by new developments in agro-technology, in energy, in artificial intelligence, in robotics, and so on and so forth. So I think the why is because this is the only way that we're going to be able to sort out, again, some problems that we created for ourselves. And the reason why I specifically uh, thought that this would be a field where I could do uh, some good was because uh, I've been, you know, like so many of us, you know, you and, and, and our, our audience right now, uh, I'm thinking that most of us, we are fascinated uh, and, and very passionate about technology. So I've been like that since, you know, a toddler. And uh, I'm a computer engineer by training. I have a master's in uh, artificial intelligence and electrical engineering. Uh, I'm a tinkerer. I'm an inventor. I'm a scientist. So uh, it became very, very clear to me very soon that I wanted to work with technology. And then I built a career for myself during, you know, almost 20 years in the financial markets, developing risk management platforms and, and, and statistical analysis systems and uh, portfolio uh, optimization tools. Uh, and it was really a matter of merging both skills, of merging the technical or technological aspect of my career uh, with the financial, uh, if you will, uh, uh, base that I was able to acquire over you know, almost two decades. So uh, deep technology was, uh, for me at least, was a pretty obvious career path. And this is why I decided to do this full time. Yeah, and I think like on the note of the importance of deep tech, I think that the way I like to think about it is that two types of problems. We have like what I call consensus problems, which are the ones that if mankind sit down and decided to solve, we could solve it right now. It's just a question because we don't agree on things. And the other kind of problem is, is the one that is the non-consensus problems, which is like you have like the COVID-19 pandemic. Even if all the leaders in the world and every single human being decide we want to solve this problem, it's not going to be solved because we don't have the capability of solving. So this is what uh, I find most fascinating about deep tech. It's that a lot of the problems are problems that even if we as society want to solve, we can't because we don't we lack the capability of solving it. So it's a lot of interesting new problems and technology there. And regarding your book, why writing a book? Why did you decide in 2021 to write a book? Right. So, so, so the the genesis of this book was uh, I, I started writing a. I still do. I have a uh, a monthly uh, column in in the most prestigious newspaper in Brazil called the Estado de São Paulo, uh, called the Future of Business. So I post on a monthly basis a column about. The future of business, right? And I started writing that in 2016, I think. And after writing, you know, and back then it was a weekly column. So uh, very quickly I built uh, a, a decent size stack of materials. And and after I, I I got to I don't know 40 or 50 weeks into writing those columns, I I noticed that they were interconnected, right? So that these columns, although you can read them in any particular order you want, you would enjoy them more if you kind of read it sequentially. And then I decided that, you know, it would be pretty simple 
famous last words. Uh, it would be pretty <laughs> simple to take all those columns and just okay. compile them into one, uh, you know, uh, unique volume and publish a book, mm -hmm. right? So I, th I, I, I thought, you know, I think Brazil and my target at that point was to publish it in Brazil um, because I felt that we as a country, uh, we are again missing the train of history by not uh, having the adequate resources targeted to science, technology, and education. And I, I said, well, maybe my contribution to society could be to write a book to point to people how important, how relevant this has always been and how the future will belong to the countries, to the nations, to the uh, societies that are able to dominate uh, basic science and create prosperity from that. So that was the main objective. I, I thought that would be uh, an effective message Uh, that I could put out there. So I wrote the book, and again, that's why I mentioned a famous last words. Uh, quickly, it became more than just taking the existing, existing columns, right? I decided because now I didn't have any sort of constraints of size, of number of characters yeah. or number of words. Then I started to dig into the history. Uh, there are, you know, dozens of illustrations in the book, you know, charts and, and info charts to drive home the point. Um, so it took me a while and, and I published it in Brazil in late 2019. But as I was, you know, in the finishing, you know, giving the fin finishing touches uh, in the yeah. project, Uh, I already felt that this this was a, a book that would be of interest not only to uh, I hoped the Brazilian uh, people or Portuguese speaking people, but it could be much broader. So that's when I decided to uh, to translate it to English, which is you know arguably uh, the global language, right? This is this is the internet language. Uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to, to find uh, quite quickly a publisher that was interested uh, in, in publishing the book, uh, the Fast Company Press. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the, the book is now available not only in, 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 in Brazilian Portuguese, but also um, in English. So, so that's, I guess, the, uh, the background story. Yeah, yeah. It's always more work than it seems at the beginning, right? <laughs> much more like like much more there's no comparison it's crazy <laughs> and as, as an investor when you are looking in, in, at the deep tech uh, startup what do you look for in a deep tech team the team of founders like what do you, you look for so so yeah uh, uh, investing is always a a, a, a multidisciplinary uh, 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 subject mm -hmm. and Analyzing a company, uh, a startup is again uh, a multifaceted process, but and we, we you have to look at multiple aspects. But when it comes to the team, uh, I guess there are uh, the obvious things that you have to uh, uh, check, which is the uh, level of expertise, of technical expertise that the team has, right? Because in deep tech, uh, as we have mentioned before. 
uh, we're dealing with new technologies. We're dealing with pushing the frontier forward. So it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to find a very strong deep tech company where at least one or two of the founders are not either PhDs or post-PhDs with a couple of patents under their belt with extensive research experience uh, in a specific field of choice. So this is, again, one of the first things you want to look at. How, what's the pedigree of that particular team in in the technical area they chose to invest in or to develop? Uh, the, the next thing you want to look at is, are, are, is the team uh, prepared to succeed, right? Because as venture capital investors, we know that the odds of success and failure are, are, are pretty different, right? So uh, in, in regard to that, you have to think to yourself, okay, if, if, if everything they're setting out to do works, will they be able to scale the success? Will they be able to bring this to fruition? Because uh, a lot of these founders, they have the skills to, to make things work, right? They're, the no. tenacity, the intelligence, the experience. But as you know very well, uh, as a successful entrepreneur yourself, building and scaling a business uh, is, is a different game, right? It's one thing yeah. to have the idea and to create a new technology, but to do the product development, the business development, the sales cycle, uh, the scaling, this is different. So I also uh, look at that team and ask myself, okay, does this team look like they will be able to uh, scale uh, or even more important and more common actually, uh, do they have the common sense to realize that when the right time comes, they should relinquish some of their roles uh, where, you know, in a startup is very common that, you know, five or six people are doing, you know, everything for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but as things start to work the right way, uh, you'll need to bring in new people with different skills. And sometimes this is very challenging, right? So that the founder who was the CTO and the CEO uh, will have to make a choice and say, okay, I don't want to do the sales, uh, the marketing, uh, the traveling. Uh, yeah. I want to continue to develop the technology. So uh, so these are, when I look at the team at the very early stages of a company, I think these are important uh, aspects to keep track of. Yeah, I think so. Like leaving the bench or the computer and going doing other stuff, it's like, I think it is just breaks the heart of a lot of founders who are deep technical at some point. Like you need to do that if you want the company to be successful, otherwise not going to be. But at the same time, you want to keep doing what made you successful until now, right? There's a, there's a psychology involved because what all the success of the company in, 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 your, in your career at that point, it's from your technical expertise. So now you need to move out of it to another expertise that's not your necessary or forte. So there's a lot of things involved, I think, in the mind of the founders when they need to do uh, this type of transition. And do you see uh, any models like where you have like uh, technology being developed in universities and being transferred to the private sector, to startups, to, to develop it in a company like an, an hybrid model where you have like the researchers and just a transfer of technology? Have you seen this being successful? It's unlikely. I mean, uh, it's, it's now, uh, maybe a few years ago, 
But right now, the entrepreneurial mindset has become so prevalent among uh, students uh, and even some university professors where they work in an environment where they can, uh, you know, be the advisor of a PhD thesis and be, you know, the sponsor of a specific patent and make yeah. sure they get royalties uh, on the results of that yeah. particular technology that uh, the the usual model and the one that I, I suspect is going to be prevalent for, for the near future, at least, is uh, you have uh, your uh, PhD students, your graduate students in very technical fields uh, developing research. And some of those are definitely going to choose the academic path and are going to choose be, becoming a professor uh, uh, and becoming, uh, you know, connected to the university of their choice throughout their careers. But mm, I think the vast majority is going to choose to take that knowledge and try to bring it to the uh, real world, if you will, meaning mm -hmm. developing a company, developing a product or a service and trying to uh, scale that. And I think that model has a better chance of working because we're not dealing with a, uh, a model where the technologies are stationary, where you can take a technology and say, okay, here, this is the technology, uh, I'm transferring it to this other group, uh, just run with it. Because yeah. the aspect that I think is more important in the deep tech world is that we're dealing with very complex issues. And so the development of the technology takes a life of its own. And I think, uh, again, these are domain subject matter experts, and it's very hard to translate that knowledge or to transfer that knowledge. Uh, so I suspect that the model uh, for the foreseeable future is going to be, you know, uh, graduate students making their research, figuring out as they make the research what is worth uh, pursuing, uh, eventually protecting some of that research with patents and intellectual property, and then uh, running with it uh, into the, uh, the startup world. The, the, the VC community now is, has become increasingly interested uh, in investing and allocating into deeply technical companies. So I think it's a virtuous cycle where you have yeah. money to back these entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs uh, uh, feeling that there is a market for them to explore their ideas. I think that there's some labs that I would give as an example of that. I think that the Church Lab in the Wise Institute is a great example of that, that he has, I think, as far as I remember, uh, five, six, maybe more students that used to be PhDs there that all create like new companies on the on the biotech sector so i think the, the wise institute in, in harvard i think the broad institute has something similar you you i will start seeing some of those labs that tend these more entrepreneurial like professors that at the same time have this entrepreneurial mindset they stay as professors but they join as advisors of companies of their students so you have this like almost like an incubator type in some labs specific labs with like uh, some professors. So this is, yeah, I, I see this as an interesting development as well. And it's good for the, the student as well because he gets a new option, another career options and, and to, to develop the technology. And 
in the deep tech space, what trends are you following? What do you think are the trends that are most interesting right now? Yeah, that's that's a that's a very broad and interesting question. Of <laughs> course, uh, we're uh, you know we're investors. Actually, we are we think of ourselves as allocators into deep technology, meaning that yeah. uh, we're not hyper specialized into life sciences or robotics or energy uh, or virtual reality. Right? We allocate into trends that we believe are inevitable. Uh, and asymmetric in the sense that they uh, have uh, uh, a very uh, clear path uh, into the lives of businesses or or people or governments uh, or NGOs. So I think right now there are two or three trends that I feel that very strongly that are are critical and that are going to be producing massive value to, to, to investors uh, and to society. I think one is synthetic biology. I think we are now at this inflection point where we're going to see, I think, a number of breakthroughs in synthetic biology that have been in the making for a few decades. So I do feel strongly that this is a, a very interesting field to invest in right now. Uh, in artificial intelligence, I think we're now at the age of natural language processing. I think we're we're, we're now. I think we figured out. Uh, it, well, we actually are figuring out, but we have now reached a very uh, satisfactory stage in the computer vision world. I think now the accuracy yeah. with which we can recognize, identify objects, people, and uh, uh, situations uh, using cameras. Uh, is at a level where the the, the really uh, strong breakthroughs are here and we're going to see now uh, other improvements that are just going to continuously evolve. But we now have critical mass so that this visual computing ecosystem is now off to the races. And I feel that we are now at, at the cusp of seeing that with voice, right, with language, interacting with machines, talking to machines back and forth, not even realizing you're talking to a machine, having your 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 texts and having your voice analyzed for positive or negative emotions. And again, back to what we talked about uh, before, about what will not change in the future, right? So all those things I think are going to be really important. So NLP uh, is, is for me a strong a strong trend for, for the, the next few years. And finally, uh, I think the third trend, uh, which is coming with, you know, coming back with a vengeance, it's climate tech. We saw that in the early 2000s, but that was basically solar energy and solar panels, mm -hmm. and that did not end well for for those of us who were in the in the in the market uh, in the venture market back then. But right now, the combination of so many new technologies, uh, new materials, new energy sources, uh, big data analysis, uh, all those uh, individual trends, they're now converging to try to solve the, the climate uh, challenges that we're now facing. And I think climate tech in general uh, will become incredibly important for, for the next vintage of funds. Just one additional point to this. I was just thinking about what uh, is the importance, you think, on timing on this type of, of investment? Because it, it seems to me that some things are great ideas just at the wrong time. Like 
definitely clean energy and, and it's it's a thing that's gonna happen. Maybe we don't know when, but it's it's needed, let's say, if you want to keep living in this planet. Like, how do you, how do, uh, I know that it's a joke almost time in the market, right? But uh, how do you, how do you think about this, about like perceiving the timing, if the time has come for a technology? That's a great question. And for me, the answer is very simple. Uh, it has to do with economics, right? If, if the idea is fantastic, but the implementation, the execution is not economically viable, the timing is wrong. Is the idea is okay and the economies of scale are perfect, this is a company that is going to, to, to take off. So to your point of clean energy, right? Uh, why do you think that we are now living at an era where it makes a lot of sense to invest in clean energy? Because now the cost of the megawatt produced by renewable sources is smaller than the cost of energy produced by fossil fuels, right? So electricity yeah. produced by solar or, or, or wind energy is now cheaper than electricity produced by coal or, or, or oil. So yeah. economically, it makes sense. So the agents in the market will have incentives to invest yeah. there. So I know it sounds harsh, but we cannot forget that there there's a role for the governments to play to fund research projects, long-term mm -hmm. projects, projects where you will need decades of intense work to get to a point where it's economically viable. Uh, our role as investors, you know, we have a duty mm -hmm. to our investors, to our LPs, to provide them uh, with opportunities that are not going to take uh, two or three decades to come to fruition. Uh, we yeah. are absolutely connected to what are those technology, what are the technologies that are actually economically uh, 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 doable viable. Yeah. or viable in the, yeah. in the in the next you know five to ten years. Yeah, yeah, this makes sense. I think this, and I think that even if it's not necessarily cheaper when it starts to get at the same level as as traditional sorts of energy it's already you already have something because you have like an incentive to switch because of the environment pressures and legislation you already have like i think this is like the sweet spot when from now on it starts to be really interesting and economic viable yeah and and when you look at all this like besides the timing and and the and all the strings like how do you separate the hype from the reality in all those texts? Because there's a lot of, we know there's a lot of hype in the media and 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 some people actually actively fabricate hype to, to, to get invested in and things like that. So how do, do we separate the hype from the reality? I think you have to do your homework, right? It's, it's good old-fashioned reading and talking to people and making sure that you don't get caught up Uh, in sexy headlines and in empty claims. I think most of the uh, 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 technologies that we look at uh, are fortunately are created and developed by very, very strong technical founders. So uh, we try to block all the noise from, uh, from you know, uh, headlines that are trying to tell you where to invest in and what is, you know, sexy and what sells uh, magazines or newspapers right now. 
and you have to look into what will be profitable, what has scale, what will create value to the founders uh, and to the investors. Uh, and the way to do that is to, you have to be cognizant of what the market wants. So this is where things get really uh, mixed because the market is, is, is often driven by that hype. So you have to figure out what is actually going to be the impact of a specific technology uh, or, the, uh, or the demand for that specific technology that the market will, is going to look for. But as an investor, as someone who's looking for opportunities, uh, you have to, to, to exercise independent thinking all the time. You have to make sure that if you make mistakes and you are, of course, going to make mistakes, that you own them, that it's it's your mistakes to make. It's not, oh, but I was doing whatever everybody was was i mean history yeah. has been very harsh on on people that mm. have followed you know massive movements of capital one mm. way or the other uh mm. those those trends usually don't end up well yeah yeah makes sense and uh peter Thiel famously said like we wanted flying cars and you got like 140 characters i have another one that i just got recently i forgot from who's like take uh, except by our screens like cell phones tv and computers take them all the screens out we are in the 70s or 60s everything else is the same inside our, our screens so <laughs> do you think that uh uh technology progress is slowing down uh no, I think there's there's a famous uh, quote by uh, uh, an American psychologist called Licklitter. Uh, he wrote in the 1960s, he wrote a fantastic book called Libraries of the Future, uh, which is, it's an astonishing book. Uh, but he said, we humans, right, we overestimate what we're going to achieve in 12 months and we underestimate what we're going to achieve in 10 years. And I think, uh, you know, this yeah. quote by Peter Thiel, uh, I think it alludes to that. I think that we were, you know, very, we are very quick to jump to a very far and away future uh, that yeah. eventually will not pay out or not play out. Yeah. Uh, because again, it's a human thing to do. We look at something, we extrapolate, and we think, okay, great, now I have the, uh, the tools, or I will have very shortly the tools to create this completely different world uh, where everything is going to be uh, different. But uh, the truth is that we evolve uh, in another pace. And I don't think that, you know, we have seen any sort of technological progress slow down. On the contrary, I think we're looking at an acceleration. And to give an example that I think now became famous, uh, if you look at CRISPR technology, right, gene mm -hmm. editing technology, gene splicing, this is something that has been, uh, you know, in the works for a long time, academic, and then it became yeah. a, 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 a reality because of the technologies the, that were around it. And this is all under the hood. But we're now seeing an explosion of companies and of possibilities that are going to use that as a yeah. basic tool because now we have that. Same thing happened with a computer, with a smartphone, with a car, uh, with a steam engine. I mean, we can go back into history and see how those pivotal moments work out, but they don't play out in months, right? They play out uh, over a period of time. So 
I am a strong believer that the biggest difference from the era we're living in right now uh, and what has happened in the past is the acceleration, uh, is the speed with which progress is going to, to, to evolve. But that does not mean that uh, we're going to see a completely different planet in yeah. another year or two. Because again, there are there is a commonality to all those technological evolutions, which is us, right? Human beings are not going to change. We're not going to grow a third eye. We're not going to grow two or three brains to multi-process information. We're not going to have smaller fingers to be able to, 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 to work out with smaller gadgets. There are limitations that we as a species create and that technology has to abide to. And this is where I think a lot of the frustrations uh, are I think there's a lot of things that I have this uh, theory or hypothesis that a lot of this sentiment came more from aesthetics than really technology. Like you see a lot of those visions of the future of, of how houses would look like, how dresses would be like. And in the end, we, we as humans, a lot of, a lot of we, what we like would not change. We like to have like a park. We like uh, maybe a wooden library or things like this is not going to be substituted by a glass library. I still like to go to the Library of Congress in Washington when I'm there. So this the aesthetic element of it, I think that that when you look at those visions of the future, they are more aesthetic than really technological most of the time. Like you have some of the details like the cars and things, but most of it is more aesthetic. Maybe this is one of the reasons why we feel that we are not that in the future, while we have a lot of things going on for ourselves. And uh, do you think that the deep tech revolution will widen the gap between the rich and the poor nations? That's a, again, that's a very thoughtful question. I think historically, uh, unfortunately, uh, we have not done a great job Uh, whenever there are important technological breakthroughs, we have not, you know, uh, we didn't do a good job of making sure that everybody was along for the ride, right? Uh, you clearly had the winners and the losers and countries that were left along the way. And uh, I would love to, to think that this would not be the case now. But again, looking at history, uh, I, I'm afraid this is not going to be the case. Uh, the caveat here is, and I'm not sure if it is enough to, to, to change that trend, but the caveat here is that, as I said, uh, the economies of scale that some of the technologies that are going to be coming to fruition in the next few years um, are going to be so massive. And I think we're going to realize that it's going to be more profitable for everybody if you grow the market significantly, right? The smartphone industry realized that very quickly that what would make it a hit was not that 5% of the world population had a really cool phone. What would make it really useful was if like 85% of the population had uh, a smartphone. So I'm thinking and I'm hoping at least that 
the same uh, reasoning is going to apply to many of the technologies that are going to come to fruition because we're talking about, you know, uh, people living longer lives, better lives, healthier lives. Uh, we're talking about people doing less dangerous jobs. We're talking about automation. We're talking about uh, more productivity. We're talking about uh, more information. And I think that that it's a, it's a numbers game in the sense that take, for instance, big data. It will be as useful to you as the number of data points you have and the algorithms you have to process it. So you will almost forcibly, you'll have to involve more people, more countries, more populations, more ethnicities into the mix to be able to extract value. So getting back to my earlier point about economic drive, it's going to be an economic decision to say, well, we need to make this accessible to as many people as possible because this will make our product better, will sell more, will be more profitable. So I think we're potentially, and we'll have to see how this plays out, we're potentially getting into an inflection point where this uh, equation will work out for once uh, favorably to you know all types of nations and not only to specific uh, countries. I think that one on this point of the distribution or, and on the necessity of having a lot of people, I think there is the hypothesis that there will be like a, a geopolitics playing involved in that because when you think about like the rise of China and they have like 1.4 billion people in their own country. So they have enough people in, and they have enough critical mass of people to do a lot of things with data and with basically anything without people from other countries. But no one has that many people besides India, of course. So any other country that wants to have a massive number of anything will need to somehow collaborate with other countries to, to at least be a, a match for, for, for China in like big data, or and data collection or anything that like you need like a lot of data to do. So this could be as well a, a competition thing uh, in, in the future. And when you think about, you wrote a book yourself, but what others books would you recommend for founders? Uh, well, there are many, right? There are of course the obvious ones that I think every founder should uh, read, which is uh, The Hard Things About Hard Things by so. Ben Horowitz and uh, From Zero to One by uh, by Peter Thiel and Blake Masters, but so so these are you know must reads. Uh, but I think that there's one book that is is not about technology, but it's about building a company, which I think is is fantastic. Which is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. You know the history yeah. of Nike. Uh, yeah. That's just a fantastic book, um, and. Uh, I think there's a book by um, Adam Grant, and I think Sheryl Sandberg is, is listed as a co-author as well. It's called Originals, How to Change the World, How how uh, Entrepreneurs Change the World. Yeah. I mean, something, something like that. I remember the title was Originals. I don't remember the subtitle, but yeah, definitely Adam Grant, Originals, yeah. Yeah, so I think, again, if you're a founder... You know, in the spirit of entrepreneurship, I think it's a good read. I think I think these are good, interesting reads. I, I mean, every everyone, every founder uh, has a their unique you know uh, path, their unique story. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that uh, those experiences that those books uh, try to convey, they're useful, you know, to uh, to be uh, absorbed and to be uh, understood. And they're again, and they're fun, good books. So. 
So I think yeah. I think I think it's a good a good use of of founders' time. Yeah, I second the shoe dog one because I think that was the best book that I read like last year or so. Like, I was really surprised by the fact that the the guy who created Nike is a great writer as well. Like, it's really well written. You would be surprised by the the beauty of the language he uses and the examples he gives. Like, he took a lot of work to to write. It's not like those. Uh, ghost reading types of generic business books like you see that there's a lot of passion and a lot of emotion in that writing it's a really great book and what about investors well, what book would you recommend for an investor I think because I'm a risk manager by training I I think investors should not read only books about how successful and how uh, happy and joyous the life of someone who's investing in venture capital can become. So I, I would probably recommend because the success stories everybody knows about, but the yeah. the bad stories, the drama, uh, it, it's not so, I think, uh, uh, well known. So I like, there are a couple of books that I think that, you know, are really useful. Uh, one, uh, one is, of course, Bad Blood uh, yeah. by uh, Jean Caribou. The, the history of Theranos. So that's that's a great read, you know, uh, great uh, uh, story. Uh, there's another one called Chaos Monkeys by yeah. uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez, who, who, who provides a, a little bit of an insider's view on a very successful uh, startup. So again, investors uh, uh, being aware of, of some of the... And, and again, these are extreme examples, but yeah. I think... Uh, you know, everybody read the story about, you know, someone who put $10,000 in, in Amazon in 19, uh, uh, 99 and, you know, becomes a, a, a billionaire. Um, I think um, there's, a, there's a great book, I think, both for founders and investors alike called VC, the, uh, An American History by uh, Tom Nicholas. He wrote uh, basically a fantastically well-researched book on how venture capital came uh, to, uh, to fruition, right? Oh. And he starts with the origins of venture capital in the whaling industry in the 18th century. Uh, and if you look at the oh. structure of whaling expeditions and the, the structure of venture capital funds, it is absolutely mind-blowing how there are perfect parallels between those two worlds. So I think for investors and founders alike, it gives you great perspective on how come we are here uh, with that you know investment structure. Um, what's the name again? The, the VC story? What's, what's the name? V, no, it's VC, an American yeah. history, history by oh, Tom okay. by Tom Nicholas. It's a oh, great cool. great book, uh, oh. and. Uh, and I think there's one book, and it's probably the best book I've ever read. Uh, if you want, like a practical guide into investing uh, in uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, it's called uh, "Secrets of Sand Hill Road" by uh, Scott Cooper. Oh yeah, yeah. He wrote like this well thought, clearly written, concise book on you know how does venture capital work. What's a term sheet? What does every single term in a term sheet mean? What are the risks? What works? What doesn't work? It's a fantastic read. And I think, you know, for, for investors particularly, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like probably the first book that I would recommend so people get a good feel for, you know, this business that we are, we're in. Yeah, yeah. 
Cool. So heading to the end, I have still a couple of questions. Like working as an investor in deep tech, you need to learn a lot of things. It consume a lot of information because a lot of things going on. Like how do you keep yourself up to date? Like how do you learn new things and how do you keep yourself like it's your funds really broad. You have like a lot of different areas there. So I have I have well first this is this is a full-time job right the this is you cannot do that on the side so this is the only thing I do I literally uh, get paid to read to research to talk to people and to draw smart conclusions on where you know my investors money should flow to so I think that the up-to-date process is is less about being able to access information because this is This is a commodity in our day and age. You know, there are so many resources available for free for anyone who has an internet connection, right? You can you can yeah. take uh, courses from the best universities in the world. You can see TED Talks and you can see tutorials and you can see critical thinking. I mean, it's just the availability of information has never been broader and it's going to continue to increase. You look every single minute the amount of yeah. video and data that is uh, just poured into I'm the internet is, is is staggering right uh, so i think that the, the 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 discipline that you have to develop uh, as an investor or as someone who is interested is to make sure that you have your priorities right right because it's so easy to go on a tangent and and to read about either the latest hype or the latest meme uh, or the latest trend that is is getting clicks and likes and all that so for me it's less about the access to information it's more about the discipline to be able to focus on things that matter so I'll, i'm reading uh you know i'm an avid reader i, I have usually uh, uh two or three books going at the same time that i will cycle through them uh in in several types of of subjects i i have a number of resources you know magazines and newspapers and uh, twitter personalities that that I think create great signaling uh, to make sure that I'm looking at or reading the right stuff. Uh, and of course, uh, I was lucky enough to, to, to build or I'm act continuously building, I think, a network of other investors and entrepreneurs uh, that, again, they feed me with signals that will point me to the direction that I think that is going to be more profitable to my clients. So so I think in aggregate, all of those different sources, they're just kind of contributing to giving you signals. And it's up to you to take those signals and make sure that you know what to do with them. Yeah. I think that to your point, I think that people don't nowadays don't appreciate enough the the network as a source of knowledge. Because there's so much information on the internet, but there's even more information in people's minds that is not on the internet or it's not published that you can only access by asking and talking with people. It's surprising Absolutely. by how many things you can't learn from the web and just need to ask people. Actually, the, the most latest tech things, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and this is, again, uh, there's a, a, a part of the deep tech world that is locked into journals 
uh, into papers, into universities that you have to pay attention to, you have to be connected with, because this is, again, back to the signals, this is going to signal a lot of things that are coming down the pike, and you want to be ready as an investor. So that's another, uh, to your point, area that is not commonly talked about. You know, there are not that many talk people talking about the, you know, New England Journal of Medicine or the I3E mm -hmm. uh, uh, Spectrum publication, but this is where you're going to find a ton of uh, uh, important signals uh, to, to move forward with. Yeah. And my last question for you is that if you had a chance to send just one message to every human on earth, what would it be? Wow. Uh, one message to every human on earth. Uh, I'm assuming I have to keep the message very simple, right? Because it's going to, to reach uh, seven and a half billion people. <laughs> so uh, I would say read as much as you can and learn a musical instrument. Those would be my, my I think, recommendations. I think reading gives you critical thinking, gives you uh, the ability to think independently, gives you uh, substance to be able to discuss multiple issues with different people, gives you different points of view, and allows you not to become uh, flustered when someone doesn't agree with you. Uh, you try to understand where they're coming from, and you try to build from up from that. So I think reading... Uh, still is the most important thing or advice I can offer uh, to anyone, uh, you know, any one of the seven and a half billion people that now I'm talking to. And if they have a chance, and I understand this is not for everybody, but if they have a chance, uh, I think that learning a musical instrument is, is, is key because uh, looking at all the domains of knowledge uh, that we have mastered over the last centuries, uh, music and music notation is remarkably stable, right? Uh, I don't think we're gonna ever, if you, if you look at a, at a sheet, at sheet music written by Beethoven or, or Mozart or Chopin, and you look at sheet music produced today, uh, they are absolutely the same. I mean, the code that people yeah. use to write uh, music and to translate that music uh, into art Uh, is is the same, and I think it says a lot about a world where language is so important. And you can argue that music is the higher form of communication, right? It's universal. You don't need to yeah. study prior. I mean, listening to music affects people in a very similar way, no matter your background. So I feel that if you understand how to, you know, read those, you know, those scribbles on paper and translate them into music, whatever musical instrument uh, we're talking about, guitar, piano, recorder, violin, uh, uh, clarinet, tuba, I don't care. As long as you have that skill, I think it opens up you know, a world of possibilities, yeah. both uh, uh, intellectually and emotionally. So uh, I, I would strongly recommend people to pursue uh, some sort of art form, you know, painting or sculpting or, uh, or writing. Uh, but I do feel that music is probably one of the most noble activities that you can put yourself to. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you for your, your presence on the podcast. It was amazing having you here. I hope that in the future we have a follow-on episode with you as well. Thanks. Thank you for having me and I'm looking forward to that.
Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.